Welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Tommy Davis, who graduated with his engineering degree from Texas A&M University in 1986, earned his Texas professional engineering license in 1990, and has worked for many different companies, including Bristol Myers Squibb, Argonne Medical, Future Matrix, Texas Medical, and currently West Pharmaceutical, developing products ranging from critical care catheters to surgical instruments. Tommy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Aaron. Glad to be here. All right. So I'm going to start this off with um, uh, what hopefully is is a, a simple question. Um, why did you decide to become an engineer? What What was it about engineering that interested you and uh, what what motivated you to pursue a career as an engineer? So I guess uh, several things, Aaron. Uh, as, a, as a kid, I grew up uh, on, on a farm, and growing up on a farm really just was around a lot of uh, different interesting uh, pieces of equipment and had access to uh, a lot of tools and a lot of things to work on and always some sort of problem to solve. And so uh, my, my dad was very supportive and really pushed me to, uh, you know, to take on different projects and different things. And so really, really learned to solve problems and sort of think through things very young. And I was just pushed and that carried over into uh, I guess into my high school years where I was very active in uh, FFA and 4-H and, and really got involved in a lot of uh, sort of design competitions and, and uh, projects where I was able to, to build, you know, design and build things, take them to the, to the local fairs and, uh, you know, manage to have some folks come and say, hey, can you, can you design this for me and build it for me? And I don't know, it all sort of started there. And then uh, as I, you know, entered into uh, into college, um, I really started looking for something that, you know, aligned with my interests and, uh, and just kind of landed on engineering. I didn't really have any engineers in the family, but uh, had some friends that went into engineering and just sort of, joined in with them and, and just sort of went out there. And honestly, I, I can't imagine doing anything else. Uh, after, all, after all these years, it was just sort of a, you know, I guess a luck of the draw, so to speak. I uh, don't know that I really had my sights set on that too early on, but was probably headed in that direction unknowingly. You know, it's so funny that you mentioned growing up on a farm because I have heard multiple people say to me independently that the best engineers they know grew up on a farm. And it, it must be something about, I don't know, fixing tractors and just using what's around to make machinery work. Um, can you remember any any things that you fixed or maybe even designed from scratch back uh, during your days on the farm? Oh, absolutely. My, my dad always wanted a, uh, a way to uh, level his, 
his roads in his pasture and, and up around his barn and those kind of things. And so he, he always wanted a, uh, a blade of sorts to pull, pull behind his tractor. And he, and he was really just too cheap to go and buy one. And so I saw one that, uh, you know, that a neighbor had made. And my dad said, you know, if I bought you the steel, could you, could you make me one of those? And so, you know, he took me over and, and I measured this thing up and, uh, he even, even bought me a, a welding machine <laughs> and, uh, and put it out in our kind of farm shop. And before you knew it, I had an acetylene torch and all the different things. And so that was probably one of my first big projects that, that I made. And later, uh, you know, I made these different kinds of gates and hinges and, just about anything you can imagine. We had a pretty generous scrap pile of metal and things that we always kept and collected. So, you know, I was allowed to go and kind of have, have my way with the scrap pile, so to speak, and always making these different projects. And the word got out, you know, in the community. I lived in a really small community, and all the old farmers would come up with this project or that, and, and uh, my dad got a real kick out of it. And, sort of fed the habit, I guess, and, and really, you know, inspired me to, to go further. Uh, but it was a lot of fun. And, I, yeah, there's there's so many problems to solve on a farm, and, and uh, you know, there's a lot of innovation and ingenuity, I think, that you that you have an opportunity to, to exercise there in that, in that environment. What what a magical experience that must have been, I, and I'm sure your dad was so proud and, and pleased of you for being able to do all that. It sounds like um, just a, a, the best proving grounds imaginable for a young budding engineer. Yeah, it was great. You know, and like like I said, he was very supportive and, and uh, always encouraging me, and and it was fun to you know to see. You know, I think engineers love to admire what they're able to accomplish after it's done and so you know when you can finish one of those things as a kid you're, you're especially proud and especially when people recognize it and uh, sort of add you on and encourage you it, it really is very inspirational i think how old were you when you started welding so it was really my freshman year of high school so we we had a organization called Future Farmers of America, FFA, and uh, I was in that in my, in my freshman year of high school, and one of the, one of the modules that we did was uh, acetylene welding and cutting, you know, with a, with a torch, and then also arc welding, and so, you know, I was pretty good at it. I, I had an interest in it early on, and so, you know, when I brought home the first couple of, of uh, samples that I did in class, my dad, he was just beside himself. So he, he runs out and buys me, uh, you know, this Lincoln arc welder that you could plug into your uh, 220 circuit. <laughs> and there you go. You know, I was off to the races from there. But. I'm guessing that arc welder was a good investment for both you and your, your father. Yeah, you know, it was it was not only just handy to learn on, but we had so many things around the farm to repair and uh, 
once I kind of learned to use it pretty well, we, we didn't have to, you know, go to town to the welding shop to get little jobs done. We could do it there. Uh, yeah. there on the floor, so. That's terrific. Well, fast forwarding a little bit. So you've graduated now and uh, you start looking at this thing called a PE license, a professional professional engineering license. What what are some of the reasons that prompted you to consider getting your license? And then, you know, how long did that process take and what was the preparation like? So I knew pretty early on I wanted to do that. Uh, it was really a goal I had, I guess, coming out of college. And I had a, a uh, an individual, an engineer, I, I would say he was really a mentor type, you know, that was already a professional engineer. And sort of during my college years, I had an opportunity to do some drafting and design uh, as I was, you know, as I was going through my coursework. And this individual was just, just really sort of took me under his wing and, uh, you know, talked to me about it and the importance of that and, uh, you know, what it, what it would mean to me uh, in different situations. And so he, he really inspired me to do it. And uh, so I started really working on it, I guess, in, in college preparing, you know, took the, took the EIT. As I as I exited Texas A and M, and in those days, it was uh, about a year long process, I guess, to get the application in and, and get all the requirements met, and then they have to do a like a review. And uh, this is really <laughs> I got to date myself. This is really before the PC days, so you didn't have email and. All that sort of thing. This is back when they they literally boxed up your PE applications there in the state and UPS them to various reviewers around the state. And so it took quite a long time to to hit all the different board members that did the review. And it was about a year, as I remember. Uh, but it was you know it was very interesting. You. You had to have experience working with uh, a number of different PEs that were familiar with your work and could vouch for your, you know, vouch for your work, and your your sort of character, and uh, also you had to demonstrate that you had, you know, a command of uh, of your profession in, in the kinds of work that you you did. So it was a lot of uh, a lot of writing describing uh, that but it, it took about a year as I remember how has how has having your your PE license um, helped you in your career so uh, in, in Texas I and I don't know about other states but in Texas if you want to practice as an engineer in the in the public uh, and advertise yourself as uh, an engineer or engineering services you have to have your PE license. And so it's really a prerequisite to that. And then, and then also in Texas, you, you have to have a firm registration. And, and associated with that has to be at least one PE within that firm. And so for me, it was, uh, it was important because I wanted to do, you know, I had, I had some aspiration to, 
practice privately as an individual and, and have my own business, you know, similar to what you do. And so I did do, in addition to the work that I listed there in, in my bio, I did consulting for a number of years, you know, and and was able to do that because of my PE. And uh, it, it's, uh, you know, something I think anyone that, uh, at least in Texas, if you aspire to do that, it's it's going to be a requirement from the state that you that you have that in your credentials, and, and they they will check up and, and monitor you, uh, you know, via the web and, and through surveillance to assure that if you're out uh, practicing your craft that you've got that, you know, as as a credential. How hard was the test? What was it kind of like any old college final exam or, or was it much more comprehensive and challenging? So again, I'm going to date myself. And in those days, it was, uh, it was a, uh, I guess a, a time that you had to spend practicing and you had to show evidence uh, and you, you didn't have to take a test. You had to take the EIT test, but not the principles of practice, and call it. So I can only tell you my oldest son is also a PE and, and just recently took his. And I, and I did see his uh, materials that he was studying. And, it you know, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty challenging. He was able to take it and pass it the first time. But uh, it's, you know, it, it touches on a lot of areas. And, uh, but if you're, you know, if you're practicing and using all of those things that you learn, uh, you know, it's just putting, putting it to practice and demonstrating you got a command of that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the greatest days of my life was the day I turned in my thesis after completing my master's degree and I knew I had no more tests in front of me. So the idea of going back and taking the PE exam is just giving me like nightmares already. <laughs> All right. So in in addition to having your PE license, you also are certified as a Six Sigma black belt. Can you take just a few minutes and and uh, share what does it mean to have your Six Sigma black belt? Uh, what all does that entail? What skills do you gain when you become certified as a black belt? Um, and and maybe you, what what prompted you to to get that? So that I was uh, at some point in my career uh, with West, they offered to allow me to uh, to enroll in the Six Sigma black belt program, and, and really it's. Uh, it's about problem solving and, and methodology to really understand, uh, you know, how, how, to, how to identify and solve problems and, and understand variability and processes and, uh, you know, performance of, of systems and, and products. And so I was working in R&D at the time and, and sort of was extended an offer to, to get into this. And it was... Uh, it was about four months of training, uh, a week at a time consecutively. And then you had a, uh, basically a year long project that you had to do to, to get the, uh, you know, to get for the committee and, and show that you had a mastery of the, of all the, uh, different elements of that. And then you, you had an exam at the, at the end of that to, 
you know, to get your certificate, so to speak. And so a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of tools and techniques and, and a lot of, uh, I guess, statistics and uh, design of experiments and, and different ways to slice and dice data to understand, you know, sources of variability and, and kind of where to focus your effort to, to try to solve a problem. Really use a lot in, in uh, processes, you know, mold, injection molding processes. Uh, you can use it in, in machining, you know, to optimize machining processes or, or uh, just kind of, you know, chase down problems uh, in those areas and, and, and try to understand how to, how to solve them. Can you think of a, a specific example, a project that you worked on where you were able to use some of the training you gained from the Six Sigma Black Belt to benefit the development of that product? Oh, absolutely. So probably one of the more recent ones was I worked on a, I was working on a drug delivery system for, uh, for a particular customer and it had, you know, some performance uh, characteristics that needed to be met, and uh, we just weren't meeting them uh, initially. So, was able to, you know, design a, a design of experiments with different variables uh, that you could feed into the to the design of experiment run analysis, and, and be able to come back and sort of focus on the areas that. Uh, were probably the likely contributors and then create, you know, things like regression models and, and prediction models that would allow you to, to uh, you know, sort of dial in and refine different aspects of it. So ultimately was able to, you know, solve the problem and get to, uh, to the point where you can meet the requirement. Nice. I love that, hearing real-world applications for engineering and yeah, it works. It's, it's a really, it's a very, it's a great tool. And, uh, you know, honestly, Aaron, I, I love statistics and I, I go back from time to time and try to take uh, something, you know, either out of ASU or some other uh, college that's close to where I am and, and uh, just pick up, you know, more skills there because it's, uh, it can be really useful. Well, another one of your, unique skills is is risk management. Uh, can you share a few best practices that you follow for mitigating risk when developing new products? So I, I like to, uh, you know, I use a lot of, a lot of the FMEA type analysis. And so one of the things I like to do and the approach that I like to take with FMEA is one of the first steps is to really take a product apart and, look at all of the different features on each of the components and I call it a feature function now and so you know if you if you look at every bump and crook and cranny and hole and feature on that component and then you you know assign it a name and, and, a, and a feature number as you start to build out your FEMA you can start to start to build lines where you know, those different features interact with one another. And then you can, uh, you can start to understand, you know, what, what can go wrong. And, and as you go through that, you can look and, you know, start scoring that out 
and coming up with ways to mitigate that. Uh, so very, very useful, uh, I think, there. We've done quite a few FMEAs, and they take some time, right? It, it's not like you're going to spend half an hour or 60 minutes on this and be done. They, they can take quite a while. What have you found to be kind of the balance between between when doing a, a, an FMEA is necessary and when you can get by without one? So I think it's all about risk, right? I think you have to look at uh, what, what kind of risk are you talking about? You know, is it, is it, uh, it the, the, the nature of the failure? Is it, is it uh, you know, is it life-threatening? Is it a nuisance? Is it uh, kind of a low-risk type of a, of a thing? It, it is an investment, as you say. It takes a lot of time if you do it right, and it takes, takes a lot of people. You know, I think FEMAs that are done just by an individual or maybe not as valuable as, you know, a, a team uh, that, that really looks at it from a lot of different perspectives. But uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's about, you know, uh, investment versus benefit, I guess. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. You know, some products, medical devices, you, you just don't have a choice. It's, you, you've got to do it. It's expected. Uh, other, other things, maybe it's more of a choice. Well, it's exactly what you were saying, right? It, it's an assessment of risk. And for a medical device, typically the risk can be life-threatening or fairly severe. So uh, that's that's a really good answer. It depends on the risk. What can you think of? one of the most mechanically complex devices that you have helped design. And if you had to design that device again, knowing what you do now, what would you do differently? Oh gosh, probably, probably the most complex mechanical devices that I've been involved in or probably some of these drug delivery systems that, that I've worked on in the last few years. There's, Lots of moving parts, right? There's, there's motors, there's electric motors, there's gears, there's plastic, there's stamp components, there's all of these different things that have to mesh and interact and withstand lots of different conditions. And uh, I, I think, you know, material choice is, is really a big thing to consider uh, up front. Uh, you really need to understand the requirements of those systems really, really well before you ever, you know, put the pen to paper, so to speak. Uh, if, if you don't, you're probably going to miss something. And that other probably, you know, where I've stumbled in my career is, is not really spending enough time trying to understand those requirements, whether it be, a you know, a temperature requirement or some sort of, other environmental challenge that you were going to see later on when you got kind of into the testing phase. And so, you know, tip, pla with plastic temperature is a big one, right? Creep, uh, those things usually will get you in either in environmental conditioning or in, in shelf life, uh, things really start to, <laughs> to show up, uh, maybe when you didn't expect. So, I think understanding your material, understanding what it can do, 
under uh, different conditions re really are important to understand uh, up, up front. Uh, yeah, I think the requirements document is huge and it's so easy to maybe not put the amount of effort that you should into a requirements document because everyone's excited about the new project. You know, engineers inherently, we just want to jump in and start designing something. And it kind of takes a little bit of self-control to hold ourselves back initially and say, well, before we jump into the CAD box, let's let's take a look at the requirements and make sure everyone is very, very clear on what exactly these requirements are. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I, I think, you know, one of the other big things that I've seen blow projects up is, is kind of these late, these requirements that come in very late to the project. Uh, scope creep, yeah. You've already committed to architecture. You've probably invested a lot in tooling. And, and so, you know, having some requirement that comes in very late that really blows up your your design and your investment you've made blows up your schedule and your budget and ultimately probably makes you and both your customer unhappy. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember reading an engineering book ooh, back when I was in a young, much younger engineer, and it was talking about the costs associated with changes at different times during the development process. And Oh, it was it was you know a ten x scale. So a change at the very beginning of a project doesn't really have much effect on the overall cost. It's just you know one x um, change. Uh, but the further you get in, it's you know now it's a ten x cost, and a little bit further into the project, now it's a hundred x cost. And and towards the end of a project, it might be a thousand x cost to introduce this new requirement or, or design change. So it adds up pretty quickly. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a an accurate accurate uh, assessment. Well, you've held positions ranging from uh, ranging from a, a design engineer through director of R and D. Um, what what was your favorite role, and and why? Well, uh, you know, I'm an engineer. I love to design. I love to uh, I love to get on the, you know, on the board, so to speak, and, and put pencil to paper. And nowadays, you know, CAD. I love that. that. That's really what makes me go. Is but as you move through your career and as you start managing, you know, others and uh, kind of taking a more, you know, remove role, I guess, from from the design part of that. I really get a lot of uh, uh, enjoyment, a lot of joy from seeing others come along and mature, you know, as engineers and and take on more uh, kind of more responsibility and see see success there. And so I I, I like that too. I, I have to be honest, I, I enjoy the people side of it a lot too. And so I don't know. It's uh, part of part of me misses the you know, the, the design engineer uh, role. But but there's also a lot of joy, you know, a lot of fulfillment, self-fulfillment, I guess, in uh, being able to, to manage others as well and help them grow and uh, mature. Yeah, passing on some of that hard-earned wisdom. So speaking of, of uh, more of a, 
managerial director mentor role like you're in right now, what are some of the challenges, some of the big challenges that you see as, uh, let's say specifically as an R&D director? So I think, you know, it's uh, a big, a big challenge. I think often is, is recruiting uh, the, you know, finding the people that are, uh, that really enjoy that aspect of engineering. I think, you know, different engineers enjoy different kinds of, of environments. And uh, I've, I've found that in R&D, uh, sometimes it's harder to find that person that really enjoys that aspect of, of engineering. Uh, you know, the ones that do really love it. And uh, when, I, when I have had to go out and recruit, sometimes it takes, sometimes it takes a long time to find that person. Uh, and I think part of that is probably the economy that we're in. You know, it's a very good time to be an engineer. They're they're very much in demand, and so I think that's part of part of that as well. But uh, that, that's probably uh, probably one of the bigger challenges I've seen. Yeah, you know, I've heard others echo that same comment. Recruiting is just really difficult all across the board. Yeah. Well, you've. <laughs> I'm going to apologize beforehand because I'm going to date you a little bit here. Uh, you've been an engineer for almost 35 years now. How is the industry different now than it was when you graduated in the 80s? Oh my goodness! So, you know, when I when I came out of uh, when I came out of college, we had um, you know PCs were just coming on, so it, it was kind of a new thing to sit down in front of a PC. We, you know, when I did programming for example it was fortran and we used punch cards and uh there was no you know there was no pc that you sat down and, and did your cad work on it was it was all done on a, on a drafting board with a you know with a uh, a lead holder and a, and a sharpener and, and uh, so I'm, I'm really dating myself now but there's so many tools today you know that engineers have available to them to help them get their work done. There's, there's great CAD packages out there. Uh, you know, it, it's, it, it is so amazing what you can do with those packages now in terms of uh, just being able to visualize uh, what you're doing three-dimensionally. And, and not only yourself, but to be able to take that and to communicate to others what, what you're doing. You know, with the with the with the web and with all the, the different tools that you have to share that uh, all over the world. You know, it's not just in your office, but globally, and and uh, it, it's just amazing. You know, where technology has brought us the FEA type tools, all the you know the different packages. You you mentioned risk management earlier. You know, there's great risk management packages out there that are canned that now you can do great. You know analysis with that as opposed to billing them, you know, line by line, which is, uh, you know, tedious. But uh, I, I think that, I, I think also, you know, the curriculums that you see coming out now uh, with, the, with the engineers that are graduating are, are uh, more rounded, I guess. You know, they, I, it seems like the engineers 
the young guys that I recruit are, are so much better rounded maybe than what I felt like I was when I came out. They've been exposed to a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of different things and maybe what I was as, a, as an undergrad. So uh, that's a really interesting insight. Um, I wonder clearly uh, the design tools we have nowadays, you mentioned CAD and um, simulation packages, FEA, that kind of thing. Clearly there are some tremendous benefits to using those. Have you noticed at all that because these tools kind of do a lot of the fundamentals for us, have you seen uh, any detriment uh, in terms of engineers not, not understanding the fundamentals as well? Or has that just not really been a problem that you've seen that has come along with some of these more advanced tools? <laughs> oh, that's a that that's a funny one. I have to I have to say, uh, you, you know, I I give you an example. If I was going to work out a, uh, you know, sort of a graft angle or something like that, I would probably pick up my calculator and, and use a trig function on my calculator to do that. The young guys, a lot of times, they, they go, what are you doing? <laughs> you, can, you can do that in CAD with about Just two sketch it in CAD, yeah. Yeah, I, I probably see that. And, and, I mean, you get to the same place, you know, ultimately, and they're just taking advantage of the tools. And, uh, and I, I think yeah, I don't see any, any uh, you know, any problem with that as, as a just – observing I, I think in a lot of ways they're you know the engineers as I said I, th- I think they're much better prepared because they come out with much more uh, rounded in, in a lot of ways uh, yeah yeah that's fair well what what changes do you expect we'll see in the engineering industry over the next you know five or ten years I think you know the I think the cad uh, the, the analysis packages the cad is just going to keep improving you know we're gonna we're gonna have better better tools to work with that are more probably even collaborative than they are today where you know multiple people can work on the same thing uh, I, I think that's going to continue I think an exciting one that I see is this additive manufacturing you know I know that uh, a lot of folks are using those different kinds of technologies today and you know, from a product development standpoint, you know, uh, that has just cut so much time off of the, the development process, being able to, to go from CAD to prototypes in the same day. And uh, I think as, as we go forward, they're going to keep developing better materials and, you know, newer technologies that are going to let us just get better and better and do more things that we, we can't do today. Uh, yeah. That's pretty revolutionary. Yeah. Well, Tommy, um, to end here, how can people get a hold of you or of West? You know, maybe I'm a, a, a young engineer just about to graduate and I, I want a, a shot at being hired by West or, or maybe I'm looking for a mentor or I don't know, whatever the case is, is there a preferred method for people to get a hold of you or, or West? Absolutely. So if you, if you want to look at West as uh, employment opportunities, if you go to West pharmaceutical uh, on the web, there is a uh, career uh, portal there. And so they post all the job openings 
And I, those those update, uh, you know, often. And as a matter of fact, I am looking as we speak for four new engineers, uh, <laughs> three three mechanical engineers and, and one electrical uh, software engineer. So, and and this just uh, you know this is all the time. I, I think in total today, just there in in Scottsdale, we're looking for thir- thirteen new engineers just in. Uh, R&D. Wow. I would encourage anyone that's looking, uh, you know, to get perhaps in the medical device industry uh, to, to go and take a look at the West portal. And uh, you can apply there online and, then, you know, there'll, there'll be a uh, corporate recruiter that, that will reach out to you. Uh, it, you know, and you're always free to email me as well. I think, uh, I think maybe my email is posted there. Uh, if not, you can reach me at uh, Tommy, T-O-M-M-Y, dot Davis, D-A-V-I-S, at westpharma.com. So either either one of those two ways. Or you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Re- reach out to me there. Fantastic. All right. Well, Tommy, thank you so much for spending some time together today. Uh, it's been great just learning about your background and your history and, and some of the insights that uh, you've been able to share. So thank you for your service en- as an engineer and uh, and for the time that you spent on the podcast today. Thank you, Aaron. Really appreciate the opportunity. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a positive review. It really helps other people find the show. To learn how your engineering team can leverage our team's expertise in developing turnkey custom test fixtures, automated equipment, and product design, visit us at testfixturedesign.com. Thanks for listening.